Talking Books on Newsroom 106 to 108. I would probably want to talk about Eve, you know, as man to man. What is it that is so attractive and yet so apparently fatal about that charm that she has? The poem famously in Book Nine, Adam chooses to eat the fruit, not because he's deceived by Satan, as Eve is, but because he's, quote, fondly overcome with female charm. And I wonder what he means by female charm, and I'd want to talk to him about that. I think that would be at least a key question that we could discuss. I wonder what he would say to that. He might say, well, just read the poem. It's all there, perhaps. Does John Milton's epic poem Paradise Lost need to be rescued from its religious critics? And what about Eve, Eve, Eve? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to delve deep into the human imagination and meet with two extraordinary minds. American neuroscientist and musician Daniel J. Leventon discusses thinking ahead, staying on task and the metabolic cost of multitasking as teased out in his latest bestseller, The Organised Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload and one of the foremost scholars of Satan as a literary and cultural phenomenon. Professor Neil Forsyth and one of John Milton's greatest fans, Dr. Danielle Clark, discussed the psychological complexity of this incredible poet. This is a show about time and freedom, leadership and authority, inspiration and the nature of choice. But first, our organisation and creativity enemies. Dr. Daniel J. Leviton is a James McGill Professor of Psychology and Behavioural Neuroscience at McGill University, Montreal, Canada. He's the author of the hugely popular book, This Is Your Brain or Music, The Science of a Human Obsession and The World in Six Songs, How the Musical Brain Created Human Nature. Well, Daniel's latest book, The Organised Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload, is smart, accessible and unbelievably useful. In The Organised Mind, Daniel writes, The most fundamental principle of organisation, the one that is most critical to keeping us from forgetting or losing things, is this, shift the burden of organising from our brains to the external world. If we can take some or all of the process out of our brains and put it into the physical world, we are less likely to make mistakes. But The Organised Mind enables you to do much more than merely avoid mistakes. It enables you to do things and go places you might not otherwise imagine. Well, over the weekend, I had the pleasure of chatting with Daniel. I asked Daniel about the art of offloading and whether it was fair to describe organisation as essentially freedom. I think that's what it is. It's about being able to grab some free time. I think many of us feel that we have less time now than we did 10 or 20 years ago. We're wondering why and where it all went. And I think it's traceable to uh, information overload, the uh, so-called shadow economy, and the fact that we really are being asked to do more, and that's why we have less time. And so it calls out for a solution, which I think is, is just taking simple steps that anyone can do to better organize our, our time and our possessions, our work and our home and social lives. And your basic argument is there, Daniel, that if we offload some of our memory functions of our brain, that we'll be healthier, happier, calmer and more creative people, essentially. Yes. Uh, You know, we keep a lot of stuff in our heads that we don't have to. And 
neuroscience has recognized some, I would say, constraints on the brain. Just in the last few years, we better understand why the brain pays attention to some things and forgets others. And one of the principles is that you really can only hold on to a few things at a time in your mind. So imagine that you're at work and you're doing whatever you do for work and a thought pops in your head that you need to stop by on the way home and get some milk. Oh, and you have to call back Aunt Tilly on the phone because she left you a message and you forgot to call her and you have to make arrangements for your partner's birthday party in a couple of weeks. That's three things right there. Your limit is about three or four, competing with you trying to do your work. So the idea is to externalize these things, which is just a fancy name for writing them down and putting systems in place to keep track of them. Now, I'm a big believer in the to-do list. And one of my first bosses about 20 years ago sat me down on my first day of work and went, Susan, every day, start the day with a list. And I've done that ever since. I literally, there's not a day that goes by. And within all of this, it allows me to, I think, make some useful decisions because I know what's important and what I have to deal with. And I know what information has to be tackled now and what I can park. That's kind of where you're coming from in the book. This is really the key, Susan. I've spoken to so many people who who work at computers, and when they show up at work in the morning, they work on whatever is up on the computer, whatever came in in an email, whatever was the last thing they worked on, and they work at it for a while and then wonder if they shouldn't be working on something else and find themselves switching, switching, switching. The neuroscience of this is that each time you switch your attention from one thing to another, it comes at a biological cost and it depletes resources that you need in order to stay on task. So the beauty of doing uh, what you say, of writing things down, prioritizing them, and then figuring out what's at the top of the list, is that when you're doing that thing at the top of the list, you know that there's nothing more important you could be doing. You can stay on the task until it's finished or until you've put in the allotted time, and you don't waste a lot of neural resources switching. So you don't essentially have all those nagging voices going on in your head telling you, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. You essentially can focus. That's very meditative from my perspective, how I look at that, because it's a discipline that we can all use. Right. Now, there there are some nuances and subtleties to it. So a lot of people have these nagging thoughts that recur over days or weeks and they never get them out of their heads and even writing them down doesn't help. Often what happens is we've got some ill-specified thing, a project like, oh, I don't know, is it time to put grandma in a home, (laughs) right? How do you cross that off your list, right? It's something that's been bothering you. But what you need to do then is turn it into smaller actionable steps, such as, well, let's talk to grandma's doctor. Let's talk to the the siblings uh, and see what they feel. Uh, Let's talk to grandma, see how she feels. Maybe visit some rest homes and see what they're like. All these little things are actionable. So you're reducing the burden of the big whammy, so to speak. Well, you're partitioning it into things that you can actually do and cross off your list. Do you think we're living in an information overload? Because when I come into work every day, I choose, and I'm not sure how many people would think this would be the best way to do it. I keep my mobile switched off and I turn off my email because I can't get anything done. But, you know, if I go into most offices around the world, we're all told almost culturally to be completely switched on. But it's impossible to get anything done when you're totally switched on. Well, you're absolutely right. And increasingly successful, productive people do just that. They switch off. In Silicon Valley, where I spend part of the year, the idea of a productivity hour is coming back where people will turn everything off for an hour or two and, they, and their colleagues and, and friends know it. 
that they're just focusing. They're not going to be distracted by Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Vine or Tumblr or any of the rest, and not to mention email. But in organisational cultures of where multitasking is king, you know, you're project managing one thing, you're doing something else for another person, you're picking up your phone while you're emailing. How we look at, you know, the competent person or the competent individual, it's can do, action packed, deliver, deliver, deliver. Well, you know, the fact is, we talk about multitasking and we think that we're really good at it. Multitaskers feel that they're getting a lot done, but the brain just doesn't work that way. We're not actually multitasking, Susan. We're rapidly shifting our attention from one thing to the next. We pay attention to something for a few seconds, then the brain switches to the next thing and then to the next, and then it comes back around to the first one. And again, all that task switching comes with a cost. And after an hour or two of of that kind of switching, we feel depleted because we've literally depleted the nutrients in our brain that keep the neurons working, the glucose. And a number of workplace studies have shown at the end of the day, people who are multitasking and thought they were getting more done get demonstrably less done than the people who were unitasking. Now, one of the interesting things that I found reading your book, and I found it very encouraging, that in the organised mind, you look at that organisation and creativity aren't enemies. And that you say that the more organised you are, the more creative you'll be, the more you can daydream and open up your imagination. Right. And organized just means taking care of business, right? If you're a painter, you can be creative if you've got your brushes clean and ready to go and your paints lined up and you're not, you get that burst of inspiration. You're not hunting around for poplar green. And the same with musicians, any creative artist, a writer, you have to have at least a pen and paper, maybe a computer. They have to be ready to go. And organization is is not the enemy of creativity. It's what enables it. Now, you see organising your home as, as, as important as organising your social world, as organising your time. Can you talk me through all of that? Sure. Um, I think the issue is that if you're spending time looking for things, you're not spending time doing things. And many of us misplace things and then uh, spend a lot of time spinning our wheels trying to find them. So it's just all part of a big organizational picture. Now, there's a limit. So let's take the junk drawer. Everybody that I know has a drawer in the kitchen or a garage that's completely disorganized and all manner of stuff is in it. Now, I would argue that that's the way you want to be, that that's, that's exercising cognitive economy. You're not wasting more time on sorting through things than it's worth. So think about it. Take it to the extreme. You could have a, cu- a little cubbyhole or box or organizational system for every little odd thing in your house, but you'd, you'd spend all your time filing things. It makes perfect sense just to throw things that you don't use very often into a drawer along with some things that you do use very often that are united by some common theme, like stuff that I don't know where else to put. So the idea is that you don't, you don't go crazy. Being a little disorganized is actually part of being organized. And you say that we should construct our homes and our work so they become extensions of our brain. Well, right. This, this has to do with externalizing again. So we... We're talking about the power of getting those little voices out of your brain by writing things down on paper. Anything you can do to use the environment, the home environment, for example, to ease the burden of remembering is good. So the great psychologist B.F. Skinner used to uh, put this into practice. If he heard on the weather uh, weather report in the evening 
that it was going to rain the next day. Rather than remember to take his overshoes and umbrella, he'd go to the closet and set them out in front of the front door. Now in the morning when he leaves, they're right there. You see, the environment is reminding him to take them. He doesn't have to use up neural resources for that. Now, it sounds like a trivial thing, the umbrella, but you multiply this by all the different things you need to remember. It frees your brain up to be more creative, more have more social time. When you're at dinner with your family, you're not thinking about the 50 things that you didn't take care of. But it makes so much more sense, doesn't it? Like it's intensely practical. I think so. And now, uh, to be clear, I'm not, I'm not proposing that we all become a bunch of Mr. Spock-like automatons. The perhaps irony of this is that the people who take just small steps, like the ones you and I are discussing, to think ahead is really what it's all about, to organize and think ahead for how things will be most efficient for them. They're the ones that have the most time for socializing, for spending time with the people they love, and for doing the things that they love. But you could look at it also, Daniel, at times we can all feel very stressed out, very frazzled. You know, we feel that we're in this kind of siege almost where there's so much coming at us. So on, at those times, even if we allow ourselves to have that element of organisation, whether it's the visual prompts or whether it's the junk drawers and applying it on those very emotional days or those difficult times, well, then the life becomes easily way more bearable, doesn't it? Yes, I think it does. You know, I had the opportunity to talk to a number of really successful people, business leaders, uh, politicians, you know, members of the cabinet in the U.S., rock stars, uh, writers, Nobel Prize winning scientists. And the thing that struck me was that all of them think carefully about trying to minimize the inconvenience of losing something or losing track of something. One of my favorite examples came from conversations with Danny Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning author of an excellent book called Thinking Fast and Slow. He talked about doing what he calls a pre-mortem. You know, whenever there's a a, a big disaster, the the authorities come in and they conduct a post-mortem to see what went wrong. Kahneman says we should take a time every now and then to do a pre-mortem. What could go wrong and how can you minimize the inconvenience if it does? And I think all of us, anybody who's ever hidden a key in a flower pot, that's exactly what you've done. You've organized your life so that if you forget your keys, you're not locked out of the house. You've got a a hiding place. And we can do this in other ways. So if you travel, it might be a good idea to take a cell phone picture of your passport and your credit cards, upload them to a Gmail account or some other cloud-based account, so that if your passport is stolen and your cell phone stolen, which has the picture, at least you can access it with the, you know, the authorities to recover. Now, Daniel, you've great stuff from Paul Spector from the University of South Florida on the internal and external locus of control. I certainly know what, um, what one I am, but it's very revealing on leadership and also on employee culture and motivation. Yes, so there is this construct we call locus of control and people fall along a continuum. Rarely do you find somebody who's completely an internal or completely an external, but you find people who fall along this continuum. And what this has to do with and why it's important for job satisfaction and effectiveness will become apparent, I think. It has to do with whether you believe that your actions influence 
the course of your life, whether your actions have any effect on you and the others around you. There are some people who have an internal locus of control, relatively high, like you and me. We feel that if something good happens to us, it's because we worked hard. If something bad happened to us, we didn't work hard enough. We feel that we're agents in constructing our own lives and careers. So essentially agency and responsibility are our guiding forces in life. Well, yes, but not, you know, not everybody's like that. There are a lot of people who feel that there are invisible forces at work, that if something bad happens, uh, they were jinxed or the gods had it in for them or nothing ever goes right for me because there are other people who are working against me. And if something goes right, they consider that it was lucky. Now, these are the people, interestingly, who tend to gamble. So when somebody with a low internal locus of control or a high external, you would say, same thing, uh, runs out of money, they're more likely to think that a trip to a casino is going to help them because, of course, it's, it's all chance. The roulette wheel may favor them this time. And it's important to know this because it affects the kinds of people you put into different positions. If you want a worker say, in an assembly line or certain kinds of professions where everything has to be done just so, you don't want your worker to exercise judgment. You want them to do exactly as they're told. You get somebody with a high external locus, somebody who doesn't think that their actions affect the course of events. If you need somebody in a job where judgment is key, you want somebody who has an internal locus of control. Now, I want to emphasize these are generalizations, right? Uh, There are exceptions, uh, and we're talking about trends, but they're very important ones. Within all of that, I would be interested to know your take on locus of control and how it affects sexual or interpersonal or intimate relationships. So you have a woman who's a strong internal locus of control and she finds herself falling in love with a man who has an external focus of control maybe slightly paranoid thinking, but has some element of that in it. How does that all pan out from your research? It's a wonderful question, Susan. And, you know, the answer is that there are so many things that go into making a successful romantic couple. You can't just say it's as simple as externals need to be with other externals because it's just too complicated. There are too many factors. And there are many successful couples of, you know, for every combination you can imagine. But it affects respo- issues like um, responsibility, leadership, decision-making. It affects everything which impacts on a personal it does, relationship. but remember, these fall along a continuum. So somebody can be slightly to the right or slightly to the left of a partner or even a good distance away. And also, life is, is uh, full of different nuances. You can have an external locus control towards some things and an internal locus towards others. For example, I have an external locus of control when it comes to my playing uh, professional basketball. No matter how hard I try... I'm five foot eight. I'm not going to play professional basketball. And you as a musician, where would that go then when you're playing your music? Well, as a musician, I feel internal. I feel if I work hard enough, I can I can play something well. I don't know that I'll be famous, but celebrity is, is a whole different thing. I know that I can be competent. How do you explain prudent risk and what is it all about? To me, prudent risk is uh, being able to exercise judgment in a situation where in weighing the costs and benefits of a certain course of action, certain risks are are prudent, that is, are justified. And, you know, some people are better at that than others, and it occurs in wartime and in financial markets. Um, You want to get as much information as you can. You want to evaluate it and then decide. You could have something that is, for example, a very unlikely event, extraordinary unlikely, 
but it doesn't cost you that much to protect yourself against it. That's, in fact, what house insurance is. Most people go through an entire lifetime, their house doesn't catch on fire, but uh, it's a prudent financial risk to invest however many hundreds or thousands of pounds it is to get fire insurance. Where then does prudent risk meet leadership? They're obviously in relationship, but I'm just wondering, how significant is it as a leadership quality? Well, I think it depends on the leader. It depends on the industry in which they're working. But surely leaders have to be able to consistently take risks and have them pan out. And so at that point, the prudent risk becomes sort of a retrospective judgment. You look at a leader's track record right? I mean, not everything's always going to work out, but you want to be able to say after the fact, well, even though it didn't work out, you couldn't have seen it. It looked like the thing to do at the time. I think effective leaders are evaluating risk constantly. You also have that effective leaders have great empathy and they're they're very good storytellers. I thought that was very interesting because how you link how they can tell really good stories or convince people or, you know, empower those around them.